0: Have you been out birding? Outbirding with field guides is the new birding video series you've been hearing about. The latest episodes from Lima, Peru, Arizona, Brazil, Cape May, and the Prairie Potholes include adventure conversations with fascinating bird people and field pointers. Remember, even when you're at home, you can always go out birding with field guides. Join the fun at outbirding.com/aba. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. Happy Thanksgiving to listeners out there, whether you've got this podcast on the day it releases or a few days after. I'm thankful to all of you who download, and listen, and join the ABA and communicate with us. I very much enjoyed doing this and I am grateful that so many of you have found value in it as well. So thank you very much. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. Before we move on, I do have some sad news to report. The birding community and the ABA family lost one of the great ones. Ned Brinkley passed away while birding in Ecuador last weekend. ABA members may remember Ned as the longtime editor of the ABA's North American Birds, The Journal of Ornithological Record. Ned took his responsibility collecting bird records from regional editors all over the continent very seriously and would frequently write some of the most insightful and interesting essays as part of the journal's Changing Seasons column, which was meant to be sort of an overview of all the bird movement and migration phenomenon for a, for a given season. Ned's interests and abilities were varied, and he brought all of this to bear on these columns, which were frequently, I don't know, for a birder like me, you know, works of art. For people interested in status and distribution with the wheres and whys of bird movements, he was insightful and clear-minded and brilliant at tying all of these things together and frequently really funny, which I don't have to tell you isn't super easy given the subject matter. Some of the older examples of Ned's Changing Seasons column, at least through 2008, are available at Sora the Searchable Ornithological Research Archive. I'll put a link to those if you're interested in reading them. It is a it is a testament to Ned's abilities that even those reports from more than a decade ago are as readable now as they were, even if the relevance has waned a little bit. His ability to compile information, remember that information, synthesize it with a million other data points, and explain it to you in a way that makes perfect sense is I think, unmatched in the birding world, a world for which, as we know, information is a primary currency. He was also the author of the National Wildlife Federation Field Guide to North America, which to my mind is low-key one of the more underrated field guides of the region. He was brilliant, and we were fortunate that he turned that brilliance towards birds in the way that he did. I can't, claimed to know Ned as well as others. I'd run into him here and there and communicated via email occasionally. In my role as chair of the North Carolina Bird Records Committee, I would ask him to do outside review of some difficult records from time to time because he was fast and thorough and really good and had opinions about the roles of record committees that I shared, namely that we shouldn't really listen to listers about a lot of these things. The first time I ever met him in person was at an ABA event in his backyard of The eastern shore of Virginia. I might have been intimidated by the mind having read his stuff, but I found him to be so personable and kind and really funny. And I am really sad that all that is in the past, Uh, especially sad for his close friends, those many birders who considered him a mentor for whom that sort of thing was regular. Ned was one of the greats. There's no doubt about that. And we will miss him very, very much. On the show this week, it is a this week in birding, and we have a very brinkley-esque conversation, I'd like to say, about exotic species and finches and rarities, among other things. I welcome Jody Allaire, Tom Johnson, and Jordan Rudder. All that after this week's Rare Birds. Your rare bird focus for the third week of November 2020. Three first records to note this week, and we'll start with the one of continental significance. Idaho becomes the latest state in the West to host an ABA code for common crane, this one in Fairfield. This species has been increasingly common in sandhill crane flocks wherever those flocks congregate in the ABA area, but in the interior West, it seems like birders are more likely to encounter them solo. This bird certainly abides sort of by that pattern as it's the only crane around, but it has been hanging out with a flock of Canada geese. It's not uncommon for Western birds to show up in the East this time of year, but 2020 feels exceptionally good for that. Atlantic Canada gets into the fun with a provincial first vermilion flycatcher at Stephenville, Newfoundland. And just down the way at Prince Edward Island, a provincial first rock wren, though I don't have the precise location for that bird. Definitely a species that many birders in the East have been on the lookout for in recent years, though this was a photograph taken by a birder who didn't recognize it and asked for help, which is always fun. This is a, a pretty short accounting of the many highlights for this week. As always, for a more complete look at all the rare birds seen across the US and Canada, check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert. That's on Friday mornings at aba.org RBA, or you can go to our Rare Bird Facebook page at facebook.com slash groups, slash ABA rare, or follow us on Twitter at ABA bird alert. It is the last Thursday in November, and that means it is time for this month in birding. It's even Thanksgiving. Well, U.S. Thanksgiving, as one of my panelists would rightly note, but it's the most bird-centric holiday on the U.S. calendar, so why not talk birds instead of eating them? Or at least you can listen to us talk birds while you're preparing one, maybe. Uh, we have quite the panel this time around as befitting this birdie month. First up, he is the Citizen Science and Community Engagement Director for Birds Canada, our voice for Canadian birds, Jody Allaire. Welcome back, Jody. Hello, Nate. Thanks for having me back. A new voice on the panel, one of the hosts of Field Guide's Out Birding web series, a member of the ABA's checklist committee. I just realized that this morning, and, and possibly the tallest man in American birding. It's Tom Johnson. Hello, Tom.
1: Hi there, Nate. Thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely. And last, but certainly not least, from the American Bird Conservancy, Bird Names for Birds champion, Bird Twitter all-star, Jordan Rudder. Nice to have you back, Jordan.
2: Thanks, Nate. I'm so thankful to talk birds with you today.
0: that's very nice. (laughs) So welcome again to all of you. I trust you have all weathered the great eBird outage of 2020 and come out on the other side only stronger. Um, did you all have checklists that were still out there hanging in limbo?
3: It, yes, yes, it was, it was, it was a funny thing that the whole couple of days was was quite hilarious, uh, and especially on social media, uh, everyone's everyone's reflecting on not having eBird for a couple of days was was quite you know, funny.
0: But it's uh, become quite a quite a part of our lives, and you don't realize it until it's gone.
2: I'm concerned about the conspiracy, that it will have stories or fleets or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> I'm just letting you know now that I am very concerned. But I will yeah. also share that I celebrated the return of eBird being back online with my lifer, Ross's Goose, today. Oh,
0: congratulations. So
2: very excited.
0: I'm surprised you called it Ross's Goose, being as uh, bird names for bird person. Do you have another name for that like, ready to go?
2: The most adorable snowy goose out there. Yeah, it's it, it a little long. So it's going to be a
0: hard banding code. <laughs>
2: We'll work on it,
0: workshop it. Um, I want to lead off today a little bit with a project that the ABA Recording Standards and Ethics Committee has been working on. And something that I guess people have been asking for for some time, which is a list of all the introduced species populations in the ABA area. uh, Which is to say, the places where you can count a parrot or a mannequin or a jungle fowl or whatever. Uh, The ABA's opinion on these have always been like, if it's on the list, you can count it whatever your list, your rules. But people have always chafed at that a little bit, which I've always thought is kind of funny. Uh, they want direction and our set gave them direction so far, be it for me to question the res- decisions of that committee, but, um, it opens a can of worms. I think birders have some unresolved issues with introduced species. I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts.
1: Well, I think the thing I was most struck, uh, by on the list when I was looking at it was the, accountability uh, of Egyptian goose in Bentonville, Arkansas, which of course <laughs> is the birthplace and home of Walmart. Yeah. And, um. That was uh, new information for me. Um, and I was, I was glad to pick that up. So the next time I'm in Arkansas, I'm going to swing through Bentonville and have a look. Yeah,
0: it feels sort of appropriate that um, a sort of plastic goose would be um, <laughs> countable at the home of, you know, plastic everything. I noticed that they, you know, ever since Hawaii got added to the ABA area, a lot of stuff has been included on the ABA checklist, including red jungle fowl. And I, I, I still don't know how I feel about that. Because I've seen the jungle fowl in Key West and I I don't I don't count them, but you know, theoretically I could. It just feels very it feels very weird.
2: I get that, Nate. I, I wonder more so about this like philosophical can of worms though that you're you're opening with us because is the world is changing, right? And when does an introduced species not become introduced when it, when does it become part of the ecosystem that we just have to understand mm-hmm. that it's there so i just wonder about you know is this the world today that we need to start accepting and acknowledging and listing what birds are there instead of uh, really you know holding on to if they're introduced or not
0: does it have anything to do with sort of the e birdification for lack of a better word of uh, of birding in north america because like e bird has always allowed you to count these things and they they go on your list regardless whether or not it's on the aba list or whatever like if you see a blue and yellow macaw in south florida like you can, you can put it on your list you can put it on your e bird checklist and it counts on your aba e bird list and now you know does does it even matter i mean birds are birds Count them. You got to know they're out there. They're fun to identify, regardless. I don't. I don't know. I, this is what I mean about like unresolved issues.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm going to prompt Jody here, as this isn't citizen science person, especially because I feel like just documenting these birds is important, just for record keeping sake, if nothing else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I feel like we want to make sure folks don't ignore them or you know don't see them and report them, because um, you just never know when that information is going to be helpful. Right. Data is data.
3: Yeah, I fully agree. Uh, you know, it's, I, I find it's a, it's a very arbitrary decision about, you know, when something oh, totally. is countable, you know, and, <laughs> but yes, you know, like birds are birds. And I think it's important to document these things, even if they are introduced, you know, even if you know it's something that's, that's a release or, or an introduced. I think it's important to document that stuff. And really, it comes down to everyone's going to have a different idea of of what is, of what is countable on their own list and, and you know even with the 15 years you know waiting 15 years that's a pretty arbitrary number right you know but
0: totally for some species that's like uh you know 15 generations and for others like parrots it's maybe maybe one
1: yeah no ab- absolutely to to kind of underscore your point here i i think the the widespread use of ebird really has uh sort of changed how people think about recording these i think actually in a positive way um, mm-hmm. like like Jordan and Jody are talking about monitoring populations of, you know, whether or not they're just recently escaped or they're beginning to become established. These kinds of populations need to be tracked. And, you know, having that available to to eBird users to keep track of is, is definitely a positive thing. Um, otherwise, we're just going to be kind of suppressing data and not having an idea of, you know, whether or not they're parrots or, or geese or seed eaters in bentonville arkansas that uh, <laughs> you know need to be monitored
0: uh, so i didn't say what you're saying is that i should count the uh, the jungle fowl that i saw in key west
1: i think you should count it you should record it on your eBird lists and you should move on and uh <laughs> worry more about native birds
0: <laughs> that's true at least it's not like a milestone species so i've got that going for me <laughs> It's
3: one of the great stories right that's happening right now and in in uh in a time when there's there's so much negative um we have the eruption of winter finches and it's it's mm-hmm. arguably you know one of the biggest you know multi species eruptions we've seen in decades right decades and decades it's really in, in a pretty phenomenal event that's occurring through throughout eastern north america um but also in the west as as well in in not in a significant degree so yes we have a big movement or a big eruption of winter finches going through it's you know we we've been sort of talking about it for several months it's it's still going on and uh, the thing that so many people are commenting on is that it's coming in waves of different species you yeah. know we started off early on with pine siskins and especially within uh eastern canada you know we had red nuthatches nut hatches starting off and then pine siskins moving through and then the evening grosbeaks, you know really sort of piling through and uh, yeah, and the evening there. evening grosbeak flight has just been you know remarkable you know there's some there's a few days at hot cliff on the north shore of lake erie where they had almost a thousand birds migrating through evening grosbeaks, like just yeah. on really incredible numbers and now we're getting birds you know as far south as florida right
0: yeah, we're starting to we're starting to get them down here in um in fair numbers. You know, I, I'm further south than any of you, and um, we've had the red-breasted nuthatches here for uh, you know six weeks, two months now. Uh, I am now starting to see them like everywhere I go in the area, which is wild because it was an like it was kind of a county nemesis for a long time, and now I'm seeing them all over the place. In North Carolina, we're starting to get evening grosbeak reports. It's not dribs and drabs, like it's flocks of birds uh, in the mountains of NC and it's only November, you know, so, you know, in another, another four six weeks, like who knows what we're going to have.
2: I'm going to raise my fist here though and jump in and be like, evening grosbeaks beaks are my nemesis bird. They would be <laughs> this a is lifer. The year. So this is the year. they need to pit stop here in DC and let me see one before they go on to you, Nate.
0: <laughs> if they're down here, they got to be up there.
2: They keep being reported, but I just, like I said, nemesis bird. The,
3: uh, the even gross beak push, you know, is in, especially in places like Southern Ontario is starting to, to wane a bit right now too. Like they, they have gone through, there's still lots around, but they mm-hmm. have, I think the biggest numbers have sort of gone through is what, it, is what the data looks like. Now we're starting to see a really big push of red poles um, and, and pine grosbeaks are starting to come through as well. We've also got both crossbills in the mix this year, which is, which is really fascinating. Um, so it's, it's a real mega species push. I've never really experienced anything like it. You know, these, these finch movements are, you know, are really mysterious, right? And, and we're starting to learn more about them and, and, um, uh, you know, that new, that new site, that new organization, the finch network, you know, trying to pull together knowledge about all of this, which I think is really great and a really fantastic resource that i recommend people go check out but you know you can't take for granted you're going to see years like this and i think boy if there was every year that we could have this nice (laughs) gift of of these wonderful mysterious winter finches it's this is the year we needed this and um yeah so it's our little canadian gift to all of you down south Thank you. um we need it you know yeah. please enjoy you know take solace in these amazing <laughs> birds and and the the great thing about this is it's not just it's not just birders that are really excited about it it's right you know everyday people are all of a sudden you know people that are not birders you know that yeah. maybe feed birds and they're maybe just starting on their birding journey or getting evening growth beaks and yeah. and are you know losing their minds right as they should downhill from here oh yeah um, absolutely <laughs> yeah no snowflake turns to blizzard like Really quickly, you know, after seeing yeah. an evening ghost beak.
0: It is really interesting, that point that you make about this being, they're not common birds by any means, but when they do show up, they show up at feeders, predominantly. Everyone is at home watching their feeders. And this is this is the gift. This is uh, the light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully.
2: <laughs> well, and it's an especially, just incredibly special because... Uh, according to the 3 billion bird study that came out last year even in beaks are the fastest or most declining species in the US and Canada so to think that we're all like well hopefully me soon too we'll get to see the you know these really gorgeous i always say that they have like superhero eyebrows um looking things um mm-hmm. is just super extra extraordinary for 2020. And then to talk about how cool they are as a bird and the conservation that they need, it's its all coming together and it's a happy
1: thing.
0: What's the situation up at uh, Cape May, Tom? I mean, it's such a migration hotspot. I imagine you've been seeing a lot of concentrations of these sort of birds.
1: Well, just to echo what Jody was talking about coming out of Canada, this has really been a, a saving grace for the year 2020 here in Cape May <laughs> as well. Starting in July, actually, starting in August, really in earnest, we had red breasted nuthatches by the hundreds each day. Mm -hmm. And then it really picked up steam in September and October when the blue jays and and pine siskins started coming through. And and not just, you know, flocks of dozens or hundreds, but, you know, like tens of thousands of blue jays and pine siskins coming through in, in numbers that I've never seen here before for those two species. And then more recently, Evening gross beaks have come through in a few waves and they're being followed by many, many thousands of American goldfinches and recently lots of red cross bills starting to show up. So it's it's really been pretty fascinating and a a heck of a way to to spend a, a pandemic birding autumn here.
0: Yeah, I guess if you can't go anywhere, it's nice if the birds are coming to you. <laughs>
1: That's definitely true. You know, we live a little bit south of the wall here if you will for a lot of these boreal residents things like bory red pole and boreal chickadee pine gross beak bohemian waxwing things like that but this year it almost seems like it's it's a possibility that those birds might might break through and make it down here to the southern tip of new jersey
0: we're still waiting for uh common red pole here in north carolina um i think it's probably going to be here soon. I, it wouldn't surprise me if we get one because so many of them have been seen further north. And I know it's it's very exciting. As I said, like I, I have not seen an evening grosbeak. I have always lived at a place that is like just below the extent of where evening grosbeaks erupt. Even in even back when they were a bit more common. And so my like only evening gross beak experience was when I was a kid. At a feeder in South Missouri, where I was growing up, and uh, I would very much like to see one again.
3: I think evening growth peaks are, are special, and uh, and I re- I remember like growing up in Central Ontario as a kid, I would see them more regularly in my childhood, and they started becoming these movements became less and less frequent through the nineties mm-hmm. and through the two thousands, and they really are special, and uh, and I highly encourage people if they get a chance to to get to see one check them out. And they do have a conservation story. And I'm glad Jordan brought that up, right? They are, they're they're one of these species um, that is declining across the boreal region. So we are seeing less of these big pushes. Uh, the decline is a bit mysterious. It, it, there's probably a link to spruce budworm re- reduction in spruce budworm outbreaks, which is a major source of food for them and many other species. But uh, yeah, no, they're really wonderful and en- enjoy them while you can. I'd say when I was a kid, I thought, I always thought they were like, you know, the Incredible Hulk version of an American goldfinch, <laughs> you know, just burst out and became an evening grosbeak. Super awesome, kind of nasty looking birds.
0: Does that explain the eruption? Is there some sort of gamma gamma leak in uh, in Canada that caused all the, our American goldfinches to turn into evening grosbeaks and come south?
3: Yeah, surprise. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah, just, you know, we've been saving that one. So <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> It's something I've been, you know, sort of thinking about for a while, but it's, you know, the red crossbill effect. I'm glad to know I'm not the only one that sort of thinks this way, but, you know, the red crossbill effect is all of a sudden when you've got red crossbills around, there's like this onset of like sweaty panic that overtakes you because, you know, you've got like 10 types, uh, 10 call types and all these different, you know, potentially 10 different cryptic species mixed into the red crossbill. Um, what we know of red crossbills and there's all these decisions you need to make really quickly. Like I need to take a sound recording. I need to maybe take a photo and figure out what it's eating. And uh, then what do I do with the information after, after I get it? So anyway, I've sort of called out the red crossbill effect. I think it's a really funny panic inducing thing to find a red crossbill because there's all these things you all of a sudden have to do. I don't know. Tell me I'm not alone here in feeling that way.
1: Jody, you are absolutely not alone. I um, (laughs) am. There's actually this, this reflex that I think gets spurred in, in a lot of birders when they hear those little jip-jip, kip-kip calls going over. And I think the first reaction is you have to freeze and make sure that you're hearing what you think you're hearing. And then you have to shout out, crossbills, crossbills, just to let everybody within like a half-mile radius know that they're flying over. And I, I actually made a, a recording when I was watching some crossbills in Arizona last summer. Uh, I was out there with some of my uh, colleagues at field guides and they were down the road a little ways from me and a couple of a red cross bills flew overhead and I got my microphone on them and they flew right over the rest of the group that I was with. And as they passed over different parts of the group, you could hear the voices in the background, just shouting cross bills, cross (laughs) bills, as the flock went down the road. So, um, I think that's that's the first thing that happens. you do get kind of paralyzed and then I think the the need to learn more immediately kicks in and i I think the probably the primary thing that um most birders ought to try to do when they see red cross bills after they you know get a look and and appreciate the the birds is to try to make an audio recording and the the cool thing is we all have uh for the most part have phones in our pockets that we can make pretty decent audio recordings with. So even if you're not carrying around a parabola or a shotgun microphone, you can still uh, snag a little snippet of audio that can be really useful in determining uh, which call type of red crossbill you might have encountered. So I'd just like to put a shout out to uh, Matt Young and Tim Spar, two of the crossbill gurus out there who are wildly enthusiastic if you have any red crossbill recordings that you're interested in learning more about you can either put them in your eBird lists matt and tim will find them or you can just send them to them directly if you have any questions
0: yeah uh, matt is actually going to be a guest on uh, the podcast before the end of the year so i'll I'll tease that a little bit too about winter finches but we'll talk about crossbills too i just always assume they're type one where i am so that makes it easy for me I don't know what you guys are talking about.
1: <laughs> it's funny, you know, uh, Nate type one, which I believe is the the Appalachian breeding mm-hmm. uh, red cross bill. That's one that ostensibly should be a, a pretty regular site here in coastal New Jersey because the Appalachians aren't too far away, but it's actually one of the rarer types that occurs here. There are only oh, really? a, a couple of a couple of records of single individual type one red cross bills that have showed up here.
0: Do you have any idea why? Is it just because, you know, Cape May is the kind of a vagrant? you know, trap, uh, you know, migration hotspot that, you know, the Western ones are likely to hit the coast and kind of stop. And you're, those are the ones you pick up or, uh, is it something else?
1: You know, I would like to have a really nice answer for that, but I haven't the foggiest <laughs> idea. Yeah. We get plenty of type 10 and, and type two red cross bills in certain circumstances, but, uh, type one is a, uh, a bit of a mystery here. They, uh, they're pretty darn scarce.
0: Hmm. That's pretty wild.
1: I think this is all
3: just pretty wonderful. The, the the different the the fact that we're dealing with a cryptic species. I'm, you know, I, I'm one of those birders that really enjoys the the grayness and the not knowing everything about the natural world, and that there are still mysteries out there. I think there's. I really like that. And the, the red Cross Bill is, is absolutely fascinating. And I really encourage people to, um, uh, you know, to go online and, and and to look up and to learn about this a little bit more. We've got about Ten different call types, and it's and it's not just localized ones. They do massive movements across the country. And one of the things I think is neat is we have all of these different types. uh, A lot of them in in Western North America, and they routinely move across the country and head east. You know, so you can't you can't assume that the ones that you have near you are the that you see in a in a winter are the local the local population. They could be from Western British Columbia. You know, they could be from California, you know, it's it's really it's really fascinating stuff, and I and I really like it. And it's yes, for sure, it's caused that causes a bit of paralysis, and and there's a lot of mystery. But yeah, I, I think you know Tom is absolutely right. You know, take the time to do recording, uh, you know, get that entered into the eBird, and there are some you know great folks that that can help identify that stuff, and it's really fun. I think I think it's actually quite enjoyable.
1: Just in the last week or so, uh, we've recorded two different. Type four or Douglas fir red crossbills here in Cape May, which are normally found on the Pacific Northwest and are pretty rare as eruptive birds east of the Great Lakes. And these were actually the the first ones that have been audio recorded ever in New Jersey. So there, there are definitely some some hidden gems in there in amongst the the more widespread red crossbills that are in in uh, movement this year.
0: I don't know whether this year has been particularly good for like really unusual vagrant birds. And and maybe it's because we're all kind of stuck at home, you know, birding, you know, vicariously through people all over the rest of the rest of the continent or the world. It feels like the same forces that would cause, you know, Redback Shrike to turn up in British Columbia or a Common Cuckoo to turn up in Rhode Island would also be acting upon things like those Red crossbill types and we just don't notice them because people assume that red crossbow is is one species.
1: Nate, it really feels like the global vagrant index has turned to 11 this year. It, <laughs> uh, everywhere you turn, it seems like there's some other dynamic going on. And uh, it it really doesn't seem like they're all related. It's things coming from different parts of the globe. And uh, it's it's really quite remarkable. And it's it's neat that birders have some outlet for their pandemic frustration this year. <laughs>
0: yeah it causes you to ask the question are we seeing more unusual birds because people are kind of beating their local patches more or is it actually you know a really good vagrant year and it's i guess that's always the question and there's no way to really answer it but as you say it's been a wild it's been a wild fall
1: i wouldn't be surprised if it's a little bit of both i am I'm uh, consistently reminded of how many rare birds are slipping through, you know, undetected or barely Mm -hmm. detected. Um, And one of the the great ways recently has been watching what comes across on um, the what's this bird group on uh, Mm -hmm. online. And it it just seems like a regular trickle of new, new first state records is uh, produced by people photographing something they don't recognize and, and putting it out there for, more experienced birders to, to help identify. And I think that's a, a really cool thing that the ABA has been doing.
0: That group has definitely a really fantastic track record for that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, feeder birds in the winter, hummingbirds, vagrant, you know, late season hummingbirds um, always get picked up. There was one in uh, the Carolinas as well just recently. Uh, someone picked up a, a buff-bellied hummingbird. At a feeder in South Carolina, they're like, "Hey, what? What is this? This is weird." And they actually had a really nice photo of it.
3: The uh, the variegated flycatcher here in Ontario was actually right, yeah. d- discovered this way. It was It was uh, found by uh, found by a, a birder and a photographer, and they posted on they posted they not they weren't sure where it was. They knew it was unusual. They posted it on the Ontario Birds Facebook page, and that's how it got out. And then you know, quite a few people. Uh, got to see that second record for Canada, and not too far away from where the first record for Canada was was found
0: in in Toronto. Toronto is a a, a hotspot for variegated flycatcher these days. <laughs> yes, yeah, as indeed. well as anybody else anywhere else on the continent.
2: Same here in Maryland for black-headed grosbeak. Uh, Someone had it at their feeder and posted it. And I have to just chime in here and say that these rare birds has both really altered my birding. I'm a lifelong birder. And I'm kind of grateful for it in 2020 because these birds are showing up at places where we can drive, quick see the bird, and then get back in the car and drive back home. Um, Because the parks here are just inundated with people, which on the one hand is a huge positive because people are getting outside and hopefully we can really like keep this momentum for awareness and appreciation for the outdoors going, but it's also made it more people watching uh, for me than bird watching. So I'm not usually a chaser of rare birds, but these rare birds, like I said, are at least being really accommodating of their location and allowing me to like, do the whole social distancing and mask wearing and do it really uh, easily. And, and I appreciate it.
0: I don't chase nearly as much as I used to. I used to be a pretty serious state chaser. And this year has been amazing for first records in North Carolina. As you know, as we've been talking about the vagrancy situation all over the country has been, or over the continent has been really amazing. Um, But I, I haven't really chased a whole lot. I, I just like knowing about them. Like I like, kind of plugging them into my knowledge base and thinking, oh, that's really cool. Why is this bird here now? You know, and thinking about patterns and how they show up in, in our birding and uh, birding vicariously, essentially through other people and, and, you know, being happy for people who find them, for friends who, who pick them up, even if I don't see them myself. I just like to know about them.
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel that too. I think it's really cool to, to hear about what's, you know, what's really getting birders jazzed in different parts of the country mm-hmm. or the continent. Or the or the whole world, really. Uh, for instance, it's it's really cool to see all the birders in the Ottawa region in Ontario getting really excited about this mysterious bean goose that's been hanging <laughs> yeah, out for right. a little while now. You might have been seeing uh, reports come in of both taiga bean goose and tundra bean goose yeah. as the as the uh, the identification is a bit fraught and for good reason too, because the the two taxa are incredibly closely related and they've got a. A complex evolutionary history but the real thing that i've been keeping an eye on is when that bird leaves it's probably going to come south of the wall (laughs) somewhere into the mid-atlantic region with the scores of canada geese that that winter somewhere you know pennsylvania or new jersey so we'll we'll see if it ever pops up again once it leaves ottawa
2: Okay. So let's totally switch gears. I want everyone, panelists and uh, listeners to take a deep breath because I'm going to say two words and it's going to be okay. It's going to be birdie, but voter fraud. It's the only voter fraud that I want to talk about or know about or have out there. Um, And we're going to leave the ABA area and go to New Zealand. So New Zealand has held a bird of the year contest campaign uh, for for the past 15 years, and it's a public uh, voting option for different bird species to be the bird of the year. And the reason for this is, as most of us know, New Zealand has really threatened and endangered species, and so this campaign helps elevate those birds in need of conservation. Anyone, even outside of New Zealand, can uh, participate and vote uh, for this online campaign. But there's been voter fraud. Apparently, someone or someones really wants uh, the kiwi, the little spotted kiwi, to be the bird of the year. There's been over 1,500 Uh, legal votes, quote unquote. Again, this is a uh, awareness educational campaign. So this is just incredible. Um, I love, I have to say, I love to see it. I love the backing of uh, the birds. I love the involvement. I love the fact that there are like 50 moments in this article where you're just like, how is this happening? Um, Because the thing is, this voter fraud is not the first time it's happened for this. In 2015, apparently some teenage girls rigged the results um, in favor of a bird that they wanted to be the bird of the year. Um, in 2017, there was another round of uh, voter tampering.
0: Was it also for, in favor of a Kiwi? Maybe this is just a Kiwi thing.
2: I have to apologize uh, both for my pronunciation and Lack of uh, true bird knowledge of New Zealand birds. But in 2015, the bird that everyone wanted was the Kokako, K O K A K O. In 2017, it was for white faced heron. And then in 2018, it was for the shag. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that bird had more than 3,000 uh, votes. Um, by people that really wanted it. Again, this is the only voter fraud that I ever <laughs> want to talk about because I mean, when people are are just trying to promote birds and celebrate them, I think that's amazing.
1: If it turns out at the end when they've finished tabulating all the results, if it turns out that the little spotted kiwi is defeated, are you expecting that it will concede or how do you think <laughs> this is gonna resolve in the long run?
2: I have to say, I know I'm probably a broken record at this point, but the only bird I would allow to beat out the Kiwi right now if it was up to me is the hee hee. Um, little teaser there is actual like commercial sponsorships for these birds, <laughs> which wow. is just like amazing. And honestly, again, I wish we could just like get all of this amplification and uh, the endorsement and involvement and everything for birds everywhere like all over the world.
0: Just to be clear, uh Jordan, you're encouraging voter fraud. Oh
2: no, no, no. In, in the context <laughs> no. only in the
0: context of uh, of bird bird votes.
2: Yes, that's the only way I would do <laughs> it. Only, only context only context.
0: I just think it's weird that there were all those uh mail in ballots for kakapo that didn't come in until after the the deadline. Just throwing that out there. It just feels weird to me.
2: <laughs> I I just I'm telling you, this article it's like it keeps going and it just <laughs> makes me it makes me want to go to New Zealand so bad.
0: The the actual bird of the year is which one is it? It's 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 kākāpō, right?
2: Uh I have to admit I haven't seen a finalized one because the voting oh, no. only ended on November 15th. So, I think I think they're still tabulating the results actually. Oh, if it's maybe.
1: if it's within one percent, the uh, the kakapo gets to request a recount as well. <laughs> I
2: We're mean, it's really interesting that they even say that this competition's voting has a complicated preferential balloting system.
0: New Zealand <laughs> could put ranked choice voting in uh, in their bird of the year competition, but we can't get it here. Please,
3: I love this competition. I think it's a really fantastic way to get awareness out for a lot of these birds to see, you know, celebrities and, and, and politicians like backing, you know, certain birds and and trying to get the word out. You know, I love it. It's such a great model. And it's something that we could all like, you know, a lot of bird conservation organizations could learn from here because it's fantastic public awareness. And, and New Zealand has a lot of bird conservation issues. You know, a lot of these birds are, are really big, big trouble. There's a lot of endemism with these birds and there's a lot of birds that are that are really hanging on a knife edge in terms of their in terms of their population so uh so it's even more important you know that they're that they're doing this you know kudos to them don't love the vote tampering but but it's it's great to see the passion
2: i totally agree jody
1: i agree with jody and uh, i think beyond the the more sober conservation message there it's actually truly refreshing to see verifiable claims of voter fraud for once (laughs) Well, news just broke recently about the magnificent Christmas tree that's being erected in uh, Rockefeller Center in New York City. It came to light that over the weekend, uh, workers who were unwrapping the tree and sort of preparing it to be displayed actually found a small owl uh, on the tree or in the tree uh, during that unwrapping process. And it turned out to be a northern sawwet owl, another bird that's having quite an amazing flight this year. There have been some, some record numbers of sawwet owls caught at banding stations across the Great Lakes and northeastern U.S. states and eastern Canada uh, this fall. And so it's it's actually not too surprising that a 75 foot tall Norway spruce tree <laughs> might have a, a, a sawwet roosting in it during the day.
0: It's probably more surprising that there was only one.
1: <laughs> exactly. The The question in my mind is whether the sawwet was actually, you know, entrapped in this tree when it was felled and then wrapped up, or if it actually came and roosted in the tree once it was put up in New York City. There have been a number of urban sawwet owls in Philadelphia and New York in recent weeks. And, um, it's a bit of an open question in my mind, but I suspect the latter. I bet the bird arrived kind of on its own accord in this giant tree.
0: Yeah, so the question is what they're going to do with it. I guess it's in a rehab facility now. and they, they gave it the name Rockefeller, which feels a little on the nose, honestly. Um, I'm looking forward to whatever you know animated Christmas special about a lost owl in New York City uh, that this becomes obviously entitled something like Owl uh, Be Home for Christmas.
2: Well, especially when we're talking about one of the cutest, smallest North American owls that basically weighs the same as a tennis ball and looks like a little brown spotted tennis ball. I think you're definitely looking for a accompaniment to Piper, that little animated video for sure. Mm-hmm. So, And that's definitely a, a Christmas or winter holiday video that I would watch
0: at the very least uh, home owl alone to lost in the city. Thank you. <laughs> Here a <all> week.
3: <laughs> the the parade of puns on, on Twitter um, yeah. that I think you started Nate was uh, yes. is certainly the mo- the more enjoyable element of, of this entire story. Uh, certainly. Yeah. You know, the 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 new Christmas care owl, you know, is Christmas care
0: owl, yeah. cuz it's in rehab. Also, uh, Saw Wet Night, Owly Night. Boy, there's there's a lot of uh, potential. What's that? A Muppet Christmas Care Owl, although that's sort of going back to the same well. Eight Crazy Flights, not to forget our, our Jewish friends. Uh, Fly Hard is a Christmas movie. A lot of options here is what I'm saying.
2: Well, and there's a whole bunch, too, because the tree did not look the same from start to finish so the charlie brown aspect of everything mm-hmm. is also there
0: look there's a story here pixar call me we got it we got this we got this <laughs> before we say goodbye i do have a uh, a question of the month that came up jody it was inspired by you it feels like there's some light at the end of the tunnel for this pandemic you know some vaccines have made the news it's All very exciting that there might be some version of normal that could come in 2021 at some point. So now that we're sort of looking ahead past all of this, what do you guys have on your birding bucket list for those glorious post-pandemic days?
2: Well, I kind of got to go with New Zealand. Right? Yeah, yeah. I need to go to see some
0: voter fraud. <laughs> I got to
2: go see these birds. <laughs> Honestly though, I've never been to South America, so I feel like those those tropical species are calling my name with the warm weather especially right now too. But then I also have to say more realistically probably Canada. Like Jody, can I come visit both for for all of those boreal species um but also just uh we have family and friends there. So
0: I'm sure all the all the twitchers were very disappointed at all the good birds that have turned up in Canada over the last couple months now that the you know since the border is closed.
1: Well, I think Nate after I go to Bentonville, Arkansas to mm-hmm. see my newly legitimized Egyptian goose. <laughs> uh I'm really looking forward to getting back and leading birding tours, uh actually doing some birding travel around the world and getting to uh to see some of the the people that I haven't seen for a long time in in other places and, uh, get to go birding with my, uh, my tour groups again. But I will say I've, I've actually had some really great birding experiences kind of in a socially distanced manner during the pandemic. And I, I think that that's, that's one of the things about birding that's so wonderful is even when it feels like the world is just falling apart all around us, um, there's still this kind of unifying thread that can hold us together. And keep the community kind of moving forward and so that's that's been really fun for me to see during this otherwise rather grim year
3: (laughs) this is a topic of conversation with with a lot of my birding friends about you know what what are we going to do you know once there's some normalcy you know back in the world and and uh we can start birding and travel a little bit more and uh, yeah, and it just, you know, kind of makes me happy to like be creating this list to, to think that there's light at the end of the tunnel here. And, and, you know, it's not just necessarily about the birds. It's actually some of those, you know, my pandemic birding bucket list is, is really about, you know, the people I'm looking forward to spending time mm-hmm. with again, you know, that I haven't seen in, in so long and, and sort of valuing, uh, you know, time in the field with, with those kind of the people that are your friends and family is, is, You know, I've always been very important to me and and I look forward to that for sure. And so, you know, I've got a few items, you know, I've got, I've been sort of scheming a a long weekend winter birding in Newfoundland with, uh, with our mutual friend, Jared Clark. uh, So to, to finally get my nemesis dove key um so that's uh that is gonna happen for sure so he- heads up jared um want to do pelagic uh, off of vancouver island finally um and uh, to hang out with some of those amazing birders on the on the bc west coast you know i've never been to one of those big u.s birding festivals
0: oh man you gotta come so, down
3: yeah i know i should i should you know i should do that uh so if you're interested in having canadian down for one of those festivals let me know i you know i agree with tom i look forward to leading leading tours again. You know, I sort of miss doing that, uh, leading tours with Eagle Eye Tours. And, uh, and I think if there's a big, thinking about a big exotic trip, you know, I've never been to Africa. And, uh, you know, at some point it would be, be great to go uh, birding in South Africa maybe hook up with the, the amazing John Kinghorn and Tony Geddes of, of Expedition Birding down in South Africa and hang out with them for, for a couple of weeks and, and, uh, and see what Africa is all about. I think that would be a, a great thing to look forward to.
0: I'm holding out hope that there will be some pretty sweet travel deals once uh, this thing is over and they're trying to encourage people to to get out and and start uh, going places again. Um, but as you say, uh, like, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to getting back in touch with my even my local birding friends who I haven't really been able to see except on Zoom. Earlier this fall, there was a Kirtland's Warbler that showed up. Uh, about an hour away from me, and that was a, a state burden, so I jumped in the car and went out and f- went out to see that. and there were a few people around, and it's you know it's a twitch, so it's a little bit different, but everyone's masked up. It's kind of a strange situation, and I'm looking forward to you know, sitting at a bar with some friends and uh, having a couple beers and, and talking about birds. It continues to be one of my favorite things. I'm really looking forward to doing that again, and also going back to the festivals, I had some fun festival stuff. Plan for 2020 that uh, did not pan out, obviously, and uh, have been postponed. And getting back into that will be a lot of fun. I hope, I hope all this stuff works. I hope the vaccines are successful. I hope they're dis- distributed properly and that we can get back to some version of normal, You know, still with a mind of some of the things that really worked well during this pandemic, some of the things we discovered about the burning community and about ourselves. Best of both worlds, perhaps. Thank you so much to uh, Jordan, Tom, and Jody. I'll have connections to all their various uh, social media projects and things of that nature. In the show notes, I want to thank all three of them for stopping by and talking birds. And uh, happy Thanksgiving to those people who are celebrating today.
2: Thank you.
1: Yeah, thanks so much. Great chatting with everyone. Thanks, Nate. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody.
0: The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast or any of the free resources that the ABA provides, please consider joining the ABA. There's really no better time to do it. We have memberships at a number of different levels and gift memberships. They make great holiday presents for the upcoming holiday season. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. I do want to make a special shout out to... Solon Gordon of Cambridge, Massachusetts, Kelly Venci Gonzalez of Las Vegas, Nevada, Helmut Perez of Floral Park, New York, and Jacqueline White and family of Leland, North Carolina, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much for that. Welcome or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who has a spec script for a holiday movie about the eruption of evening grosbeaks across the east and it's called How the Finch Stole Christmas. Technical production is by John Lowry who was extremely disappointed one year to go see a performance of The Nutcracker that was not about the famous seed-stashing Corvid but featured a bunch of people dancing for some reason? I don't know. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley. I bet you didn't know that they were featured as extras in a holiday classic about a failed snowy owl chase. It was called The First No Owl. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook, at facebook.com birders, on Instagram, at American Birding Association, and on Twitter, at ABA. I, I just want to say, like, if you're looking for a classic holiday movie, I know one about a man who, through the intervention of a guardian angel, gets to see how hollow his life would have been if he hadn't chased that first county record. It's called It's a wonderful lifer, and I make my family watch it every single year while I leave them home alone while I'm, you know, doing wall-to-wall Christmas bird counts. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you next week.